Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. All right, good morning, Crossroads. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship celebration um, where we love celebrating Jesus, especially on days like today uh, when it is Palm Sunday. And I wanted to share a little bit of information more about Palm Sunday. Uh, For those who do not know, traditionally Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Um, And we talked about this a few weeks ago. But I feel like uh, since today is Palm Sunday, I wanted to add a little bit more detail because there is absolutely so much more to what he did. Um, It's actually a fulfillment of history, fulfillment of scripture, a prophecy that was made. Uh, And we talked about this a little while back when we were walking through the book of Daniel. Uh, In Daniel chapter 9, I'm sorry if you can't see this too clearly, Uh, This was an angel who showed up and gave this prophecy to Daniel. He said, 70 weeks, and this is the amplified version because it'll help explain a little bit, 70 weeks of years, or 490 years, so 70, and then the weeks means seven years, so 77 or 70 seven-year periods, or 490 years, are decreed upon your people and upon your holy city, Jerusalem. Now, here's what that was supposed to accomplish. He said it's going to finish and put an end to the transgression, uh, to seal up and make full the measure of sin, to purge away and make expiation and reconciliation for sin. We'll talk about more of that later. And to bring in everlasting righteousness, permanent moral and spiritual rectitude in every area and relation. And, and this is important, it's going to seal up vision and prophecy and prophet and anoint a holy of holies. That's a lot of stuff. But long story short, he said there's going to be this 490-year period where all these things are going to take place. Sin is going to be done away with, right? Uh, Everyone's going to be reconciled to God. Vision and prophecy, every vision, every prophecy will be fulfilled in this period. Now, not all of that period has taken place. He said, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until the coming of the anointed, a prince shall be seven weeks of years, right? And 62 weeks of years. He said, it's going to be built again with square and moat and troublous times. So Long story short, let me summarize what he says. He says, there is this 70, 70 seven-year periods that are going to take place, 490 years, uh, what theologians call Daniel's 70 weeks of years. The last seven years, those are going to take place in the end times, right? There's going to be three and a half years of unprecedented, global, I don't know another term, but kumbaya, across the globe, everyone gets along, uh, everyone is, is, is at harmony with one another. And then after that is going to come seven years of unprecedented, harsh, global, like destruction, violence, and natural disaster such as the world has never seen. 
That's the last seven years. That's in the future. But then that still leaves us with 69 weeks of years or 483 years of time. Now, in the Babylonian calendar, they didn't count years the same way we did. We have 365 days in a year. On the Babylonian calendar, which is when Daniel was, they count 360 days in a year. So if you take that 483 years and multiply it by 360 days, you get 173,880 days. Long time, right? If you take Palm Sunday and you count back 173,880 days, you get back to Nehemiah chapter 2, the day that Artaxerxes said, hey, he wrote a command and sent for the city of Jerusalem to be built. So this day, Palm Sunday, is not just a historical uh, day, it's also the beginning of the final week of the life of Jesus, but also the fulfillment of prophecy leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I know that was a lot for we haven't even started yet, but bear with me, that's what makes Palm Sunday such a powerful day. And speaking of the resurrection, just a quick reminder uh, for those who are going to be here, uh, next week is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday, so we're going to have our sunrise celebration at 6.51 a.m. with breakfast to follow, bring a dish to share, uh, and then we're going to follow that with our Resurrection Sunday celebration. Instead of 1037, we're going to push it back a little bit because, you know, some of us will be in a food coma, so uh, 11.07 a.m. is when we're going to start. And then the following week, even though Easter will be over, uh, we're going to have just a live Q&A where we talk about and answer questions about the Gospels, about resurrection, uh, any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, even though we'll be, we will have just finished the Gospel of Mark. All right, as you are making your way back to your seats and getting situated, um, we're continuing to walk through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and the, the, the passage that we're going to start with, probably one of the most celebrated accounts in the Bible. How many people are familiar with the term, the Last Supper? Anybody? Okay, a couple of people. Yeah, lots of people. Good, good. Here's the thing. Um, there are people who put on plays about the Last Supper. We had a group do that here a couple of years ago. Uh, there are TV shows about it. It's kind of made its way into American culture. But it's also one of the most well-known, yes, but also one of the most commercialized biblical events. So, um, so you can see I'm not making this up. Uh, if you have a smartphone, pull out your smartphone really quick, and this is what I want you to do. Uh, Google Last Supper, and then click Images. And if you do that, if you Google Last Supper and then click Images, you'll probably come up with uh, a bunch of pictures of the Last Supper and you'll see some of those are pictures that are being offered for sale. Some from Amazon, some from Wayfair, right? They do furniture. Uh, there used to be some from Sears, but we know what happened to them. So, you know, that for them. But uh, all of these different stores and places. And listen, they're not offering them cheap. Like, I don't, I, I think when I looked the other day, some of the prices were starting at like 100 bucks, 200 bucks, all that kind of stuff, depending on what you wanted. But here's the thing. This was, I thought this was funny. Uh, I want you to see how well-known this is. So um, Google Last Supper, but then after that, 
add the word Legos, like Legos, like Lego bricks, because yes, they did that. So for those of you who aren't doing that, and for those of you watching at home, um, here, here, here's what you'll see. You'll see a picture that looks like this, right? Last Supper, the Lego version. You'll also probably see um, one like this. In this one, Jesus looks a lot madder for some reason, don't know why, uh, but beard a little bit more prominent. And then my favorite one that I found was this one because it's still Last Supper, but it's Star Wars. But here's the thing. So every aspect of our culture acknowledges this whole Last Supper thing that, that we're going to talk about. Um, but also, we get one of our most celebrated sacraments from the Last Supper, uh, and that's communion. We call it the Lord's Supper, but it's based on this event, the Last Supper. Um, now, here's the thing. Everything that happened uh, during the Last Supper took place around this table, right? Uh, there were people seated all around, not exactly in the way that we have it set up here, not in the way that it's pictured in any of those pictures. It's actually a little bit different, but we'll get to that. But it was the basis for the first event in a series of events that led up to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So uh, we're going to talk about that this morning. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Mark, chapter 14. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one on the table, left of you, right of you, front, back, somewhere around you, uh, a Bible. And if not, just raise your hand, and we'll have someone bring you a Bible uh, so that you can see, again, this is, this is what the Word of God says, and also that I'm not making any of this up. So in Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1, excuse me, starting in verse 12, actually, uh, this is what it says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make pre preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, here's the thing. The Passover is a celebration of what God did in Egypt. So stay in Mark. I'm going to put some verses uh, from Exodus up here. In Exodus chapter 12, this is what God said. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So they're now out of slavery in Egypt, and God is forming them into a nation. And this event, the Passover, is supposed to be the starting event, what starts their year, the first month of their year. A couple of verses later, verse 12, he says, on that same night, the night where you sacrifice uh, this Passover lamb, he said, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And here's why I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Now, I've heard people say this was God, you know, just being mean or vindictive. And no, it was God showing to a people that worshiped all these false gods, that he, in fact, was the one true God. And when we went through this, uh, we talked about this when we went through the book of Exodus, I think it was like maybe last year or year before, uh, but we talked about not only this, but we talked about the 10 plagues, we talked about the 10 commandments, we also talked about 10 pieces of historical evidence that show that this is true. Right, so he says, I am the Lord, the blood, because they were supposed to put blood on the doorpost, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt, and that's why it's called the Passover. That's why we refer to it 
um, as the Passover, but he also says this. He says, this is the day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So they would start off this seven-day festival of worshiping God. We have Easter, Easter Sunday. They had seven days of praising and worshiping God for what he had done, right? So jump over to verse 13. So he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, that's where we get the term upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Most of the pictures that we saw have a table like this where there was this large kind of table and someone, a couple of people seated here, some people seated here, some here and here and all the way around the table. That's our Western culture being imposed on what actually happened. What actually happened is the table was nowhere near this high. It was, does anyone still have a coffee table in their house? Like, you know, coffee tables are at like couch level. That's how high the table was. And there was a couch instead of uh, a sofa, the way we have sofas uh, that kind of wrap around the wall. uh, It wrapped around the table and extended away from the table instead of sorted. So when you read verses that say they were reclining at the table, they weren't in electronic recliners away from the table. There was a couch where they would lean at the table, their feet extended out that way, and then they would eat and pick and dip and drink. And when you read the verses about them reclining together, that's what they were doing. That's what it was like. So in verse 22, up down to verse 22, it said, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And this is where we get the practice from. Because he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body. Right? So he would take it. And this is what we do. We're not going to take communion today. Um, mainly because I'm not strong enough to break the bread. That's really tough bread. Okay. Plus, they would have had thinner bread. It was like what they call matzah bread with no yeast in it uh, to indicate there was no sin. Um, but he took the bread. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. So the way they would do it is they would have, each one would have their own cup of wine. But then at a certain point in the meal, Jesus took the cup, and he dipped his bread in it, and they all drank from the same cup. We don't do that either, because we don't have God here making sure that it's clean for your, you know, everybody's palate, all that stuff. But uh, we do dip the bread one after another. And the the way they would do it is during that point of the meal, whoever was the head of the table, in this case, Jesus, the head of the family, he would give his cup and everyone in turn would dip their cup in it after him, which we're okay doing that part of it, right? He said, I tell you the truth. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of the fruit of the wine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, here's the thing. The hymns that they sang won't find in any of our hymnals. So us arguing over hymns and praise songs and whatever doesn't really make sense. Hymn literally means a song of praise. All right? So um, he said, hey, this is going to be a new covenant that he was initiating. Now, previously, right, 
A covenant, still same word today, means a contract based on an alliance between two parties. So this party says, hey, I'm going to contribute this. This party says, if you do that, I will do this. So it's contractual. You do your part, I do my part. We now have a covenant. We don't use that term today. We use terms like a contract or an agreement. Uh, but this was technically a legally binding contract by both parties. Now, the previous covenant that God had was only with the people of Israel. Stay in the book of Mark. Uh, in Genesis chapter 17, this is what it says. When Abram, who we know as Abraham, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. And here's the c contract part. If you do that, then I will make my covenant between me and you will greatly increase your numbers. So God made a covenant with Abraham, but then he extended that covenant to the people of Israel and all of his descendants. He says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So here he was saying, hey, you know what? We're going to have this covenant, and it's going to be with me and you, Abraham, but if you do your part, then the covenant will extend to all of the people. Uh, here's what he also said, though. He said, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So God's covenant or contract or agreement with the people of Israel would say, you guys do this, you're faithful. And other verses, it tells us part of their responsibility was one, to record the words of God and reveal it to mankind, but also two, to be an example of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God so that the rest of the world would know, oh yeah, that's what your God is like and that's what it means to be in a relationship with him. But now Jesus created a whole new covenant. Now here's the thing that, that from a Jewish standpoint, uh, from any standpoint, but from a Jewish standpoint, you have to understand. If two people have a covenant, no one else can come in and change the covenant. Only the original people can change it. So for God to come in and say, hey, uh, for Jesus to say, you have this, uh, this covenant with God, as we read, for him to come in and say, I'm changing the covenant, would be for him to say, I can change God's portion because I'm God. All right, so that's important. But then you get to the book of Hebrews, and this is the new covenant. Because the writer of Hebrews says, hey, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. The sacrifices that they had to make in, in agreement with the law, it only did an outward thing. Right? It didn't cleanse the sin in their heart. Right? So the author of Hebrews says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Right? So he says, hey, that did stuff on the outside when they made sacrifices every year, which was a part of the Passover feast, but he said, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself, cleansed our consciences from acts that lead to death. Those acts he's talking about are sin, so that we may serve the living God. But he also says this, for this reason, because the blood of Christ can take away the sin on the inside, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. The old covenant didn't cut it. He said Christ is a mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called... So it's now not just Israel, anyone who's called, may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I know that's a lot of like religious theology speak, but it's basically saying, hey, under the old covenant, there was this outward cleansing, like you looked like you were doing right in God's sight because you were obeying God. Under the new covenant, God cleansed the sin on the inside because he was God. Okay, so uh, jump over to verse 32. And now they transgressed. They went from this incident where they were sitting around the table in the last supper, and I wish I had a garden up here, I don't. But now they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. I hope I pronounced that right. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And this is important. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, this is important because knowing the suffering and pain that was coming his way, the thing that Jesus did was to pray, right? Uh, one of the verses that he could have called down literally legions and thousands of angels to prevent him from being killed on the cross. Instead, he chose, you know what? I'm going to pray. He literally could have destroyed every single human being with just the words of his mouth. So he didn't have to go through this. Instead, knowing the pain and suffering that he was going to go through, he prayed. Because prayer is one of the most powerful resources that God gives to us. And we don't use it enough. God gives us prayer as a means where we can immediately, the Bible says, talk to him. Any one of us or all of us, no matter where we are on the globe, no matter where we are on the planet, we have like a, I know this is old school, some of you may not remember it, the bat phone. We have a bat phone that goes directly to God, and he picks up when we pray. But he also gives us another resource, which is the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he puts inside of us and equips us so that when we are going through intense pain and suffering and issues that like just overwhelm us to the point of death and sorrow, that the Holy Spirit helps us get through it and to endure, especially when we pray. And the third most powerful resource that God gives us is another Holy Spirit-filled believer. There was a woman who was, uh, uh, she, she made this video, and I don't know all the details of what she went through. Something happened to her children. I don't know what um, she didn't say in that video, but she was like angry, mad, tears streaming down, 
cursing, yelling, and mad at God. Because she was like, what kind of God would allow this? What kind of God does this? And she said, I used to believe in God. I used to trust in God. Now I'm just angry at God, cursing, tears streaming down, just throwing a fit. Didn't go into detail. Just said, how could God allow this to happen to my children? And she said, this is the kind of thing that makes me not believe. And there were a bunch of comments in the videos throwing this verse at her and that verse at her and, and obviously didn't help. But there was one woman who was also a Christian who said, hey, I don't know the details of what happened to your children. I know it would hurt me like that if it happened to mine. I don't want to throw verses at you. I just want to be here for you. I want to listen to you, I want to love on you, and I want to help you bear this burden. She was one of the only people that that angry, irate woman responded to, and she simply said, thank you for being here and for listening. Because that's sometimes what we need. Prayer helps a lot. The Holy Spirit can help us endure. Sometimes what we need to go through, everything that this life throws at us, just another Holy Spirit-filled praying Christian who's willing to say, hey, I'm here. How can I help? Not throw verses at you, not tell you, well, you should trust in God, but just to be there. Now, this is important too, right? Because I want to look at what Jesus prayed. This is what he prayed. He said, uh, this is verse 36, Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, he's not using the exact words, but this is a pretty familiar prayer. It's actually exactly what he tells us to do when we are to pray, because in Matthew chapter 9, he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven... And he said, hey, Abba, Father, he said, hallowed be your name, hallowed being knowing that you are, are holy and righteous and sovereign. And he just says, I know that you, all things are possible for you. And here he says, you should pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I love that it wasn't Jesus just saying, hey, this is what you should do. It was Jesus modeling when he was in that instance, I do it too. And it works. Right? So now they move from the Last Supper to the garden, and then Jesus is arrested, and then he stands on trial, what many have dubbed one of the most illegal trials in human history. There's a book out that I still keep meaning to read. It's on my list. It's called The Illegal Trial of Jesus, because there were specifics that had to be done in order to have a Jewish trial. Right? And every one of them was violated so that they could try Jesus. So jump over to verse 60 of chapter 14, verse 60. Then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked them, are you the Christ? That word Christ uh, is the word uh, Messiah, it's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Thank you so much. <laughs> and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes, 
Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And here's their response. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So here's, here's, here's the thing I understand. Um, Jesus was condemned to death for blasphemy against God because he claimed to be God. Right? That's blasphemy, uh, uh, intolerable. You, you can't do that in a Jewish culture. But his death proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was God because uh, Jesus died to remove sin. Right? Only God can remove or forgive sins. But we're told um, in John 1.29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world pointing towards the Passover sacrifice that they would sacrifice as atonement for their sin. He said that's what Jesus was going to be. Then you get to the book of Hebrews, and it says uh, it talks about the fact that the high priest would have to go in every year as part of that Passover celebration, or actually on Yom Kippur it's called, and he would make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of all the people once a year. And he said, but Jesus didn't have to do that as the true high priest Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't have to go in every year to say, I'm, 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 I'm going to offer a sacrifice for these people, and now this year for these people, and now this year for these people, as an eternal being, because he was God in the flesh, he could offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of all people. But he also died to redeem and to make us righteous in the sight of God. Right? In Romans chapter 3, it says, For no person will be justified or made righteous or acquitted or judged acceptable in the sight of God by observing the works prescribed by the law. And here's why. Because for the real function of the law is to make men recognize and be conscious of sin. Not the mere perception, but an acquaintance with sin. So the real purpose of the law wasn't to get rid of your sins. It was just to make you aware that, oh, wow, I just did wrong. It's like what many of us do at the end of summer when we're flying through a neighborhood at 45 miles an hour, and then we see the flashing school beams that have been off all summer, and we're like, oh, yeah, there's a law that says it's not 35 miles an hour, it's 15. Because it's supposed to make us aware of the law. It doesn't free us from the law, right? But then it also says this, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed independently and apart from the law, although it is attested by the law and the prophets, namely the righteousness of God, which comes by believing with personal trust and confidence in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That's how we are made free from the law. That's why we're not judged by God. That's how we're made to be righteous in the sight of God because of the sacrifice of what Jesus did. And he said, since all have sinned and are falling short of the honor and glory which God bestows and receives, all are justified and made upright and right standing with God freely and gratuitously by his grace, uh, his unmerited favor, but through the redemption which is provided in Christ Jesus. So every single person, now it's not just a matter of, hey, it's just the Jewish people. 
but all people. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus, because of his grace, they're made in right standing with God. And then it also reveals Christ's love for humanity. The death of Jesus reveals that God loved us with a never-ending love, right? John, it says, no one has greater love. No one has shown stronger affection than to lay down or give up one's life for his friends. And then Paul says in Romans, and I'm going to share this as the band comes up. He says, but God shows and clearly proves his own love for us by the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, dies for us. He says that it, 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 that it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us because in another version, or excuse me, not another version, in another passage of scripture, it says while we were enemies of God, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were people whom God should have gone to war with, instead, God showed his love for by sending his son to die on the cross for us. And there is absolutely, positively no one that we're going to meet. There's no parent. There's no husband. There is no wife. There is no child. There is no mother. There is no father. There is no one on the planet or in the existence of human history that could ever love us the way that Jesus did. And he offers that love to every single one freely. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. God, we are so grateful that you love us with a never-ending love. We are so grateful that you took the time knowingly and willingly to lay your life down for us to show your amazing love for us. And I know that there are other people, uh, maybe not in this room, maybe not watching online, but other people who struggled like that woman who we we're talking about, who they are angry, who they are upset, who they are dealing with so much pain or so much suffering or hardship in their life. And it makes them mad at you. But I pray that they realize and they understand that you sent your son to die for them because of your love for them so they can be a part of your family, so you can send your spirit to be with them and in them to help them through every trial and every struggle and every burden that they are bearing. We pray that they acknowledge that and receive it with the love that you give it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.